great, beautiful Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bibles tonight. Hebrews chapter 11. I've been in services where the lights went out and uh, we did all sorts of things. At one place it was so cold, but we still had the service and we had lanterns and candles. Uh, the first time it ever happened to me was in the country of Antigua. And they put two flashlights on the pulpit, but they were going that way, so I couldn't see my notes. <laughs> At any rate, uh, we made it through. But I'm glad the lights came back on. Good to see you here tonight. Let me mention a couple more books before we get uh, into things tonight. I mentioned uh, either last night or the night before the book, Revived, uh, The Revived Life. But last night's message is a chapter in this book. Uh, so the emphasis on the throne seat is in written form in this particular book. Uh, there's a little book. I only have one copy left. Uh, but it's called Repentance and Faith, Two Sides to One Decision. How many steps are there to salvation? Well, one track says two, one says three, one says four. <laughs> what is it? Well, it's one step. And so if repentance is separated entirely from faith, and faith is what you need as the access to salvation, then repentance becomes works. So, what, what's going on? Well, it's two emphases to one essence. <laughs> and so we go into this in just detail after detail. It's 20 small chapters. Uh, my recent books are small. <clears throat> and the chapters are getting shorter and shorter. But uh, at any rate, this is just walking through the subject of repentance and faith uh, for salvation. And then how does this then apply to repentance and faith for sanctification? And uh, so on. So there's one copy left of that. If we run out of things, you can go to our website, revivalfocus.org. Then there's a book on the table called The Faith Response. Uh, you know, your concept of faith affects everything. It really does. So it's vital to have a right conception of what faith is and how faith operates. So the first chapter goes into a little bit of what I call the economy of grace and faith. The second chapter is what we're going to look at tonight from Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, then uh, I've mentioned a little bit, I'll say more about it in the message tonight, about the difference between facts and promises. There's a whole chapter on uh, possessing facts or claiming facts and obtaining promises. So what are the steps of faith and how do they differ? Uh, there's a couple of chapters on the prayer of the faith, as it's stated uh, uh, in the original language in uh, uh, James chapter 5, the prayer of faith, the prayer of the faith. It's a specific prayer based on specific faith. So what is that? It's powerful in its ramification, but what is it? And uh, there's a final chapter on the increase of faith. What does it mean for faith to increase? So uh, that's what that book is about. And if you have any questions, feel free to see me afterwards about it. It has been a delight to be back here at Redwood Baptist Church. It really has. Uh, hungry hearts, upturned faces, and uh, just uh, a tremendous uh, interaction. You know, uh, uh, when people talk about the truth, it means they're hungry and they're imbibing and God's speaking and God's opening up their eyes. Uh, when people talk about everything else but the truth, you go to the back wall and you get the mop and you wash the sermon off. <laughs> I've done that a few times too, uh, but, uh, but not here. Uh, there's been good hungry hearts and I thank the Lord for that. It uh, speaks well of the ongoing ministry that's taking place here on a weekly basis. It's a joy to come into a meeting like this and see all that's uh, going on already. And may the Lord use these days for what he's uh, planning in the days to come. He puts all those things together. And I appreciate so much your dear pastor and his dear wife and their family. Uh, I was thinking today, just the, uh, the amazing uh, kinship of heart. I mean, it's just in sync, <laughs> just bang. <laughs> and it's, it's just a blessing, it really is. Uh, that, uh, and the clarity of a focus on Jesus. You know, you sang tonight some tremendous words, the holiness is Christ in me. See, I didn't understand that as a kid. My dad did, somehow I missed it. I thought holiness is if I did this or this or this or this or this. But you know, you can do all those things and you can do it in the flesh, which means it's not holy. Because <laughs> the flesh promises nothing, even if they're good things. And so you've got to access the Holy One. And that is the energy uh, for holiness. And so it really is uh, in a person. And so uh, all of that's vital. It's been a joy to be back, Pastor. Thank you. And uh, may the Lord continue to bless us. The Lord brings us to mind. We appreciate your prayer. Uh, we've got a couple more meetings in California. Uh, I'll be preaching briefly up uh, uh, in, uh, at Hamilton Square in San Fran. That's just uh, very brief. But then we'll be down in Simi Valley uh, for a meeting down there. And then uh, 
to Delano, California in the almond country. Hopefully the almond groves will be in blossom. <laughs> We've seen them before, very beautiful. So good to be back here in California. What a, what a joy, what a privilege, thank you. Well, tonight Hebrews chapter 11 in the Word of God. We've been looking at a lot of different truth and in light of the last couple of meetings, I have referenced the concept of faith over and over again, occasionally mentioned a little bit of a detail, but we've never spent an entire focus of a night on faith itself. And so I want to do that tonight because it is, it's critical, as I mentioned, uh, to understand what faith is and how it operates. And so we go to the chapter that's known for faith. This is Hebrews chapter 11. I want us to begin by looking at verse 6. It says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now that's an amazing statement. Without faith, it is not possible to please God. How many times do we try to please God? Man, we're just trying to please God. It's us trying to please God and God's not pleased. Because without faith, it's impossible to please Him. I mean, if you were in a fork, if you came to a fork in the road spiritually and one side said trusting God and the other side said pleasing God, most of us would choose pleasing God because we want to please God. <laughs> but without faith, it's impossible to please Him. You've got to choose the trusting God path because that's how you please God. That's what this says. Now, if this is the case, and it is, how much of today please God in your life and in mine? In other words, how much was walked by faith? I remember a preacher said to me, he said, well, man, how do you know? <laughs> See, that's what I'm saying. We're talking people that have been in church for decades. I hope it's faith. I don't know. See, God wants us to know. It's critical. How much of the last 168 hours of your life, it's the last week, by the way, has pleased God? In other words, how much has been walked in faith so that grace was accessed, so that God met the standard of God through the vehicle of your life? Now, here's what's neat. It's stated, without faith, it's impossible to please Him, but what that implies is with faith. It is possible to please God. Isn't that amazing that while we still live in a sin-cursed body, <laughs> that somehow through the cleansing power of the blood and the enabling power of the Spirit with faith, it is, it is actually possible to please God this side of heaven. See, faith is like a little key that unlocks this amazing possibility of actually pleasing that holy God. The text goes on to say, For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the diligently seek him uh, is parallel to faith. See, it's understanding that, that faith is, is what we're dealing with. Now, the rest of the chapter gives examples, both of men and women who exercise faith and thus were pleasing to God. And some of these, some of these names kind of stun us. Now, some of them had a pretty good reputation. Uh, some of them had some pretty, uh, some, some pretty uh, negative things, too. And they're in this chapter on faith, which pleased God. Not everything in their life pleased God, but the part of them that was exercised by faith did. And here they are. And as we come to the end of this list, jump to verse 33. It says, who, referring to these men and ladies, through faith, skip two phrases, obtained promises. And this is an amazing truth in and of itself. Did you know that promises must be obtained? How many Christians have looked at the Word of God, they've seen a promise, promise and says, wow, well, that ain't happening. I mean, they see the promise, but it's not happening in their experience, and so they get disillusioned. Not understanding that the promises are there, they're available, but they're not automatic. They must be obtained through faith. So again, faith is like a little key that obtains the storehouse of the promises of God. You don't need to turn there, but in 1 John 5, the scripture says, and this is the victory, literally the overcoming that overcomes the world, even our faith. So again, faith is like a little key that unlocks overcoming the world instead of being overcome by the world. I want to speak tonight on the key of faith. Let's ask the Spirit of God to be our teacher tonight. Lord, we do thank you for your goodness. Thank you, Lord, for this church, this pastor, this people. 
your body here in this place, Lord, what you're doing. Thank you for your love that's been manifested, Lord, in our midst by these dear ones. Lord, bless this church. Pour out your spirit here. Bring this congregation into a season of refreshing from your presence that would so revive the saints that Jesus is the joy of every heart and so awaken the lost that literally many, if not multitudes, turn to Jesus. Our Lord, increase our faith as we look at your word tonight. Give us understanding as to what faith is and how faith operates. Spirit of God, be our teacher. Open our eyes. Lord, thrill us with the truth. Nurture faith, even tonight. Connect the dots of this truth to the things we've been talking about. Lord, use it to make a difference in the days and weeks and months and even years to come. Lord, I plead the victory of Jesus through the shed blood. Protect us from Satan's attack tonight, as we looked at last night. So, Lord Jesus, in your name, we exercise your authority over any powers of darkness that would seek to hinder tonight. And we trust you that that not be allowed. So breathe on us. Lord Jesus, may you be seen and honored. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can faith move mountains? If Charlie Kittrell were in the audience tonight, now he's in heaven. He pastored in Indianapolis, Indiana for over... 40 years. I got to know him in the 90s. It was a great blessing to me. But if he were sitting here tonight, because he's done this to me in times when I've preached in his church, he would have spoken right out, oh, absolutely. <laughs> that was his personality. Uh, but if you heard a question like, can faith move my Oh, absolutely. Because he'd seen God do it over and over again. When I first got to know him in the 90s, uh, he'd just start telling me stories of answers to prayer. I mean, just remarkable answers to prayer. And uh, 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 then uh, he would tell me, now, John, call me. Now, 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 call me often. He said, no, don't wait a long time. Call me now. <laughs> and so every two or three weeks, I'd call him. And uh, early 2000s, uh, I was back from meetings, but I'd call him. And every couple of weeks, we're talking. And almost every time we talked, he had some new, fresh, remarkable, glorious, God-honoring answer to prayer. I mean, just just marvelous. He would also ask me about everything we talked about in the previous conversation. Because <laughs> he'd been praying. I cannot tell you how I miss that man. But I remember one time he told me a neat story of God moving. They were building a new auditorium. And the construction workers had just come out. They were on the east side of Indy. And uh, they had just poured some fresh cement. And uh, they looked up, and here came a dark line of clouds. Obviously, about to dump fresh rain <laughs> on this fresh cement. And so Charlie Kittrell, uh, he looked at these construction workers. He said, well, now, uh, what will happen if heavy rain hits this fresh cement? They said, well, <laughs> if it's heavy enough, it's going to dimple it and ruin it. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> so... Charlie Kittrell slipped away to talk to God about it. Now, he doesn't have much time. You can see the clouds coming. He told me one time, he said, you know, John, he said, prevailing prayer doesn't have to take a long time. He said, it just needs to prevail. <laughs> it's a great truth if you let it sink in. So he goes and talks to God. He comes back and very calmly says to the construction workers, don't worry. It's not going to rain on this cement. Well, these men, as far as I know, didn't know the Lord, but they laughed. <laughs> they said, what? What do you mean it's not going to rain? It's right there. It's coming. It's going to hit us any minute. Well, anytime somebody challenged God in front of Charlie Kittrell, <laughs> oh man, there was a surge in that man's soul for the glory of God. I've never seen a man so desirous for God to actually get the glory as much as I've seen in this man's life. And he and his soul cried out, God, you've got to vindicate yourself. And he said they watched the wall of rain. You know how you can see it actually coming down to the ground. I forget how many acres they had there. They did have some uh, decent acreage. He said they, uh, they watched the wall of rain come to their property line, and he said it stopped. <laughs> he said not one drop hit that fresh cement. I had another eyewitness on a separate occasion tell me the exact same details. <laughs> so can faith move mountains? Yes, absolutely. And storm clouds... 
and the little things of life that affect us every day. That's where most of the stuff happens. You see, just like the right key unlocks what would otherwise be inaccessible, this key called faith unlocks pleasing God, obtaining promises, overcoming the world, and so, so much more. So we must use the key of faith. Now, what is faith and how does faith operate? Those are the two questions I want to address tonight. We're going to spend the majority of our time on the first question, and we'll take a little bit of time to deal with the second question. But let's, first of all, deal with a right concept or conception of faith. Because if we have a wrong idea of faith woven into the fabric of how we think, we're derailed before we start. So let's build a Bible conception of faith. Let's answer the question, what is faith? We're just going to take a a, a truth at a time and begin to fill out a definition. First of all, the essence of faith is dependence. If you were to look up the word faith, and it doesn't matter if it's an English dictionary or a Greek or a Hebrew lexicon, it's going to tell you that faith is trust. It is reliance. It is dependence. If you looked at the verb form, believe, you're going to find definitions like to trust in, to rely on, or to depend on. You see, the essence of faith is dependence. So, so far we have a one word definition, dependence. Now, for dependence to actually occur, it involves your entire soul. Now, your soul is your mind, your affections, and your will. I often liken the soul of man to a triangle because obviously you have to have three sides to have a triangle and you have to have all three sides, as it were, of the soul of man involved if there's going to actually be a transaction of faith. Now, let me move out of the spiritual realm for a second where faith actually operates into the physical realm just for the sake of illustration. Tonight, when you came in and sat down where you're now seated, In your mind, first side of the triangle, you understood that's a chair. (laughs) That can hold the weight of human beings. (laughs) And, uh, you know, you're not thinking really about it, but you you, you understood that, obviously. Uh, Let's go to the second side of the triangle. I call it the affections. That's where you allow what you understand to affect you. In other words, where you're convinced of what you understand, where you actually agree with it. Because you can understand something and not agree with it. But in the affections, it's when you're, you're affected. No, I agree with this. Okay, I'm convinced. And uh, so in the, in the affections of your soul, you were convinced that the chair you're now seated on would actually hold you up. In fact, before the service, I didn't see anybody checking it out. <laughs> to see if it was really going to hold. No, you're convinced. Now, if you would have stood there and never sat down, but just said, I believe the chair can hold me up, then that would be believing about the chair without believing on it. That would be easy believism on chairs. (laughs) It's where you just simply believe the chair can hold you up, but you're not depending on it to hold you up. You believe about without believing on. To believe on the chair, you have to move past the intellectual understanding and the heartfelt agreement to that third side of the triangle of your soul, your will, your chooser, where you make a simple choice to depend on that chair as you put your weight down on it. Simple, isn't it? That is faith, but it involved your entire soul, even though you didn't think through those elements, you don't have to, it all happened as you put your weight down on that chair. So, the essence of faith is dependence. Secondly, the object of biblical faith is God. We're no longer talking about chairs in the physical realm. Let's go back to God in the spiritual realm. In our text, it says, but without faith it's impossible to please Him. Obviously referring to God. Then it says, for he that cometh to God. All right, so the object of biblical dependence is God Himself. So now we can expand our definition into two words. God, dependence. Now that's the core right there. Now we're going to get in more detail as we go along, but that's the core. It is God, dependence. That's why D.L. Moody used to say, the way to get faith is to know who God is. (laughs) Why? Because God is the object of our faith. And the key to faith is the object of faith, not the subject We're the subject of faith. 
The key isn't us. Oh, man, praise the Lord for that. No, the key is not us. The key is God. He is the object of faith. Now, before we move on, let me uh, address a common misconception that needs to be dealt with right away. Uh, for the last several hundred years, since the Reformation, there has been an idea, and it's still true today, uh, among many in theological circles, as they call them, that faith, since it's a human responsibility, the idea is that faith is a human work. That's not true. You say, how do you know? Because you have verses like Romans 4, 5 that says, but to him that worketh not, <laughs> but believes. Oh, okay. So believing is the antithesis. It's the opposite of human self-effort works. There's many other passages we could cite. I won't take time for that. Faith is not a work. God says it's not a work, but to him who works not, but believes. So that is a wrong idea, and it's led to a flowering theology uh, that has actually gotten off focus, okay? So faith is not a work. It's dependence upon the worker, God, who then works. Faith is a human responsibility. It's something man does, but it's not a work because God says it's not a work. It's saying, God, I can't, but you can, so I trust. Remember that from the other night? Okay, so there it is. It's not a work. It's dependence upon the worker. Now, I noted a moment ago uh, from 1 John 5, this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. How many of you have ever heard of the song or sung the song, Faith is the Victory? All right, a few of you have. Okay, that's a song that's uh, uh, um, based on that text in 1 John 5. Faith is the victory. There's another song, we talked about this the other night. It's called Victory in Jesus. That would be based on a text like 1 Corinthians uh, 15, uh, 57. Thanks be to God who is giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so one text deals with the truth that faith is the victory. And the other text deals with the truth that there's victory in Jesus. So which one is it? It's not a contradiction. They're both in the Bible. And the reason it's not a contradiction is because faith is not a work. Faith depends on the worker, Jesus, who is the victory. But thus, faith is the victory. <laughs> because faith casts dependence on Jesus, who himself is the victory. Thus, faith is the victory because there's victory in Jesus. How many times do we read in the Gospels where Jesus heals somebody? I love those stories, don't you? I just absolutely love those healing stories. And Jesus heals somebody, and then he turns around and he says to them, your faith has made you well. Oh, wait a second, he just did it. And he says to them, your faith has made you well. Well, it's not a contradiction. Why? Because faith is not a work. It's dependence on the worker, Jesus. In this case, the healer, who then does the healing. Fascinating. Uh, for 25 years, we traveled in a fifth-wheel trailer. When my son uh, was about two, I would come down the steps of the trailer, and uh, I would say, come on, John, and he would love to come to the top and jump. <laughs> you know, the leap of faith. You know, if I didn't catch him, he's going to bounce off the pavement. So what was he doing? Well, he's casting his dependence on the object of his dependence, his dad. And I would, of course, reach out and he would, uh, he would come right toward me and I'd reach out and grab him. And so we kind of connect there. All right. Do you get the picture, folks? We cast our dependence upon God. The object of our faith. And as we come into that contact... That union with God. That's where we find that underneath are the everlasting arms. You see, faith is not a work. It depends on the worker, God. Now, those who have the idea that faith is a work, they remonstrate against any emphasis on faith, saying that, well, you know, if you emphasize faith, that's man-centered. Why? Because they think it's a human work. But it's not a human work, as we've already seen. And when anytime, anytime anybody says to me that faith emphasis is man-centered, it lets me know that they don't understand faith. Now think, it is impossible for God-dependence to be man-centered. It's impossible. 
In fact, sometimes they say, well, yeah, but if you emphasize faith, and you know, then, 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 then you can boast. You know, God says otherwise. It's Romans 3, 27. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law? Of works? No. But by the law of faith. See, faith understands I can't, but God can, therefore I trust. And then when God does it, faith knows God did it. But if you don't understand faith, you don't know if God did it or if you did it. You might know enough to say, well, to God be the glory, but down deep you're thinking, I really did a good job. Because <laughs> it probably was just you. But when you understand faith and you depend on God and God works, you know God did it. See, it excludes boasting. It's when we don't understand faith that we are tempted to say, you know, I really did a good job. Ah, God dependence. So the essence of faith is dependence. The object of biblical faith is God. Third thought, the basis of faith in God is the word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Okay, so God is the object of faith, but the warrant or basis for trusting God is his word. Now remember, Jesus is called the word in John chapter 1. There is that mystery of oneness between the incarnate word Jesus and the inscribed word, the scriptures. So uh, we see the truths kind of connecting here. Uh, God is the object of our faith, but the warrant or basis for trusting in God is his sure word. So now we can expand our definition into a phrase. God dependence based on God's word. Let's go further. A fourth thought. The foundation of the word is specific, not general. I love this truth. This can be life-changing. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, there are two words primarily translated word in our English Bibles. One of those is the term logos. Have you ever heard of the term logos? Okay. Logos is the larger word, often, not always, but often referring to the entire Word of God. For example, in John 17, 17, when Jesus said, Thy word is truth. He said logos. The whole thing is truth. The other term is the term rhema. A rhema is a very specific part of the larger whole. A rhema can be as specific as one word. It can be a phrase. It can be a sentence. We generally call that a verse. <laughs> it can be a paragraph. The point is, a rhema is a very specific slice out of that larger whole pie. Now, when the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, we, if we didn't know what we're talking about here, we might think, well, it's got to be logos because obviously we're supposed to trust everything God says. Well, that's true, but it's not logos. It's rhema. <laughs> it's letting us know, ah, oh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the specific Word of God. How did you get saved? It's because somebody showed you specific truth that when you believe on Jesus, you have everlasting life. And so you put your faith in Jesus based on a rhema. Whether it's the Romans road, John 3, 16, whatever. You see, it's specific truth. Ah, do you know that in the Christian walk, the stepping stones on the pathway of walking by faith are rhemas? Specific truth. Sometimes it's God's specific character, uh, a, a characteristic of God, but all that's based on words. See, specific truth. So it's God dependence based on God's words, or we could say it this way, God dependence based on specific truth. In other words, the foundation for faith is not general. It is specific that's why we need to understand the truth. You see, specific truth, that's the foundation for specific faith. I mentioned a moment ago, the prayer of the faith. There's a definite article in front of both of those. It's because it's specific. Specific faith, and therefore specific prayer. And so, it is specific, not general. God dependence based on God's specific truth. So you're taking God at his specific word. Let's go even further. The specific foundation is real, though not seen. Real, though not felt. We see this in verse 1 of our text in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance. It's not talking about a tangible substance. It's talking about that which is substantive, that which is real. Reality. Reality. 
So faith is the reality of things hoped for, the evidence or proof of things. What's the next two words? Not seen. Reality that you can't see. <laughs> and by implication that you can't feel. In other words, it's letting us know it's not in the sensory or physical realm. So let's drop that reality thought into the middle of our definition. It's God dependence based on the reality of God's words. God dependence based on the reality of God's specific truth. Even though you cannot see it or feel it or smell it or whatever, it's not in the sensory or physical realm. Now, this is vital to understanding faith. The New Testament says we walk by faith and not by sight. But what would you and I have done if we saw that line of clouds coming? Oh man, get the tarps out. Well, there's a place to get tarps out. There's a place to be practical, but that's not what happened in this story. <laughs> you got to find out what God wants in a given situation. You know, isn't it easy to pray for a sick person when they still look pretty good? But honestly, what about when they don't look so good? And we say we walk by faith. My dad walked into a hospital room to pay a pastoral visit to a man who had been told he would only live a few more days. I forget what illness he had. Uh, so my dad wasn't there for a healing meeting. He was there for a pastoral visit. <laughs> but while there... God stirred him to faith. We'll talk about that here in just a moment, how God stirs. And dad responded to God's leading and prayed in faith for God to heal the man and was so confident that God had moved him that he told the man, you are going to get better and you will walk out of here. <laughs> then he went down the stairs, walked out, met the man's son and said, I just told your dad he's going to live. We better pray. <laughs> shows you the human vacillation that can quickly take place. Do you know that guy got better and walked out of there and lived another 15 years? We walk by faith and not by sight, do we? We should. But how much of sight do we let control whether or not we exercise faith? You see, faith is not sight. And not only that, faith is not a feeling. Now, we know enough to say, okay, faith is not a feeling. Then look for a feeling. <laughs> but somehow we are equating with faith. You know, it's often when you don't feel a thing, but God has stirred you to trust him. That's when God's really in it. Sometimes we got these feelings and, oh, you know, God's in this. And then it all falls apart. And we think, what happened? It's because we're depending on a feeling instead of God. I've done that a few times. Oh, that's a pain. Uh, <laughs> as you crash and burn. Oh, man, I preached a, a series this last summer at my home church. On <laughs> I was only there for half of it. I had to do the rest of it on videos and stuff. Uh, but the, the, one of the last sessions was, uh, what do you do when faith uh, crashes and burns? <laughs> Boy, everybody wanted to be in that session. <laughs> that's a rabbit trail. All right, back to <laughs> what we're dealing with here. Faith is not a feeling. Let me illustrate it from the physical realm. I was born on the western slope of the Rocky Mountains in a little old cowboy town called Durango, Colorado. What a cool place to live. Uh, you guys live in a cool place, but Durango's another cool place. Uh, 1962, it was a true cowboy town. Now today it's a, it's a tourist trap with a bunch of New Agers, but in those days it was a true cowboy town. Then we moved. What a bummer. <laughs> when I was four years of age, oh man, we left all of the, you know, the ranches and the horses and the ski slopes and the mountains for the cement of the city limits of the south side, which is significant, of Chicago. 
<laughs> oh man, what a bummer. <laughs> uh, then uh, uh, we lived several years in the city limits. That's really, that's quite something to be honest with you. Uh, then we moved out to the suburbs and that's still urban, suburban Chicago, but at least it was suburbs and whatever. Well, I, you know, I, consequently, in all of my elementary and high school years, I was in suburbia or urban, suburban Chicago. So I am not a cowboy. I tried cowboy boots on once. I thought, this is not for me. Uh, I'm a city slicker. That's just the way it uh, turns out. But when I entered evangelism, the church my father used to pastor in Durango invited me to come for a revival meeting. That was so neat. And while we were there, some friends, uh, they're now with the Lord, but at the time they were living, they had a 3,000-acre ranch. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and they invited me to go horseback riding. Well, I'd heard of a horse before. <laughs> and I'd been on the back of a horse, but never really out on the range. I thought, this is the real deal. I mean, this is a ranch. I mean, this is like the real deal, you know? <laughs> and so I thought, okay, I'll go. But there was a nagging in the back of my mind that said, you're a city kid. You're going you're gonna to regret this. <laughs> but I went. So the day we went, it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful day, a day like today, you know, blue sky, nice, cool temperature, you know, it was, just, it was gorgeous. And uh, so we get to the ranch, you know, and there's the head cowboy, you know, lanky cowboy, you know, and uh, uh, he uh, is a, uh, you know, uh, there's another uh, Westerner there. So there's three of us going to ride that day. And, and they had the horse all saddled up. And they said, you stick your foot in this thing over here, you know, and you throw your other leg. <laughs> so they got me on the horse. And, and so basically my horse was just following their horses. And, and uh, they're showing me the property, you know, just gorgeous. You know, here's this Colorado stream, you know, clear water. You could see the fish. You know, I, that was a shock to me because in Chicago, you, you can't see, you, there's nothing clear in any river in Chicago. It looks like a Wendy's Frosty and a whole lot more. Uh, but, uh, you know, you see this and it's gorgeous. And then you come around the mountain and here's this beautiful vista. Here's the snow-covered La Plata's and the San Juan Range and the majesty of God just painted right in front of you. Just awesome. Then we came to a spot where there was a narrow ledge, uh, trail, whatever you want to call it, that kind of went around the curvature of the mountainside. And the head cowboys, if there's nothing to it, takes us horse straight out on this narrow ledge, which meant we followed. <laughs> and when I got out on that ledge, I was suddenly very aware of my environment. <laughs> uh, you know, I could basically reach out to the left and touch the mountain wall as it continued to ascend. That was somewhat comforting. I could look to my right and see nothing <laughs> unless you look down. And it was a long way and it was steep and I stopped looking. <laughs> well, somehow we made it past this, you know, trail on this ledge, whatever you want to call it. Then we came to a spot where not only could you look to the right and see nothing unless you looked down, you could look to the left and see nothing unless you looked down. We're now on a, what I guess they call it a ridge. <laughs> And I remember thinking, you know, I kind of would like to live. Uh, you know, it's just like, good grief. I mean, it's steep this way, it's steep this way. Well, we made it past that spot. Then we came to a spot where it was still extremely steep to the right. And the head cowboy, as if there's nothing to it, took the reins of his horse to the right and started taking his horse, not at an angle, but straight down. That steep slope, it was so steep that the hind legs of the horse basically tucked up under. It almost sat down, if you know what I'm saying. And it was beginning to, it skidded its way down, dislodging rocks and this and that. And I'm still sitting on my horse watching this guy skid down the slope, and I'm thinking, you know, that guy's crazy. Well, the next cowboys, if there's nothing to it, reins the horse to the right, and he goes, uh, hind legs of the horse tuck up under, and he starts skidding his horse down the slope. So now there's two of them. Well, obviously, I am supposed to follow. Well, there's one old cowboy word that I remembered, and I yelled it for all it was worth. Whoa! <laughs> and I had a well-trained horse. It stopped. And as the cowboy in front of me, he's skidding down the slope, he looks up. <laughs> we had eye contact. I can see him in my mind's eye. <laughs> he said, John, what's wrong? You know, I don't remember what I said, but I obviously revealed that I was petrified. Now, he could have had a fun, you know, and made fun of me as a city kid, but he was kind. He said, he, said, he was kind. He said, now look, look. He said, just loosen up on the reins. Who knows what I was doing to that poor horse. <laughs> he, said, just, he said, just loosen up on the reins and the horse will take you down. Do you know that's exactly what I was afraid of? <laughs> 
Well, finally, <laughs> I loosened up on the reins and I depended on that horse to take me down that slope, which it safely did. But may I say that while I was in the process of depending, my feelings were not in line with my dependence. Did you know it's possible to depend opposite your feelings? Just remember that when the Spirit of God says witness to that person. And there's some butterflies in your stomach. Just remember that when you've got to take a step of faith that is out of your comfort zone. And feelings might be all over the map. You see, what happens is, if we cave into the feelings, then we get off the, the position and forward motion of faith. But the reality is, faith can go forward opposite your feelings. Now, we could describe that position of faith as clinging faith. That's when you're hanging on against your emotions. That day, when I went down that slope, I was clinging. I was hanging on for dear life. That thing on the front of the saddle, man, we were buds. <laughs> what do they call it, the horn? You know, I'm hanging on to that thing. Okay, now the other two cowboys, they, they were not clinging. You know, these cowboys, they got these lanky bodies. They go over the, they, you know, they go over the, the edge of the mountain and their body just somehow <laughs> gets lined up with gravity and, uh, and they just go down. Theirs <laughs> was not a clinging faith. Theirs was a resting faith. See, clinging faith is when you depend opposite your emotions, so you're hanging on, but you are depending. Resting faith is when you are, your emotions are in line. Now, it's not two kinds of faith. Faith is faith. You're either depending or you're not. It's two positions of dependence. I'm hanging on for dear life. I was depending. They're resting. They were depending. Now, you have to be in the position of resting faith if you're going to help someone else, as the one cowboy helped me. You say, well, how do you get from clinging faith to resting faith? Well, in Romans 5, you have a progression of truth that ends with the word hope, uh, and that is not our idea of uh, wishful thinking. It's the old word that is the idea of confidence. See, resting faith. Expectation. See, you're confident. You're at rest. This is going to work. Okay. You see, do you know what word precedes that word that deals with that confident resting expectation? It's the word experience. See, clinging faith, and God brings you through. And through experience, you realize, you know what? I can rest. Ah, that's how you move from clinging faith to resting faith. And you know that day when I got to the bottom of that mountain and had experienced that. Do you know the thought actually crossed my mind? You know, that wasn't so bad. <laughs> I could do that again. <laughs> I didn't, but <laughs> the thought briefly crossed my mind. <laughs> you see, some of the old-timers who wrote articles in what we call the fundamentals use the illustration, there's Mr. Fact, that represents God based on his word. There's Mr. Faith, that's us, and there's Mr. Feeling. And as long as Mr. Faith focuses, oh, there's that word again, on Mr. Fact, eventually Mr. Feeling will come along. But if Mr. Faith takes his eyes off of Mr. Fact and turns around and focuses on Mr. Feeling, that's when we stumble and go down. So the key uh, to faith is the object of faith, therefore the focus. That's why on Sunday night that focus part was so important. So God dependence based on the reality of God's words. But there's one more thought to finish off our understanding of faith. How in the world can you and I depend on the reality of what we can't see or feel? So here's this final thought. The evidence for the reality is through the convincing work of the Holy Spirit. The evidence of the reality of what we cannot see and feel is because the Holy Spirit convinces you that's real, even though you can't see it. Remember back in verse 1, we saw the word evidence? Proof. Do you know the verb form of that is used in John 16, 8, when Jesus talked about the Holy Spirit, that he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That is, 
The word reprove means he will convict. He will convince. So let's go back into the noun that we have here. It's a convincement. Now, please don't under, misunderstand the idea of convince or convincement. It is not at its core a feeling. You may have feelings, you may not have feelings. Convincement is being convinced by the Spirit that you can trust God's words. It doesn't matter where the feelings are. You see, when the Spirit bears witness with your spirit, that is not on the soul level where feelings come and go. It's spirit to spirit. As Romans 8, 16 says, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are, not that we feel like, but that we are the children of God. Ah, so when the Spirit of God convinces you down deep, you know that's what we're talking about. And when that happens, this is not wishful thinking, it's faith. See, one, one of the reasons we get ourselves in trouble is we're not convinced and we just kind of go ahead and act like we're going to exercise faith and really it's, it's, it's wishful thinking and then we crash and burn and blame God. Well, no, no, no. Faith is always a response. Always. It is God who works in you. Philippians 2.13. See, there's divine initiation. Both to will. There's your faith response and to do. There's God bringing it to pass of His good pleasure. So sandwiched between God convincing you and God bringing it to pass is a faith response. Always. Now, it's never automatic. You can resist. You can say no to the convincing work of the Spirit of God. Oh, I'm, not going, I'm not getting out of my comfort zone. But when God stirs you, you know what that means? It means it's His will. And do you know when it's God's will, you can trust God to do it, and He will? Because <laughs> He always comes through when it's, when it's His will. See, faith is responding to God's initiating, convincing work. And did you know, when that faith response takes place, God responds to those who respond to God. God stirs you. You know, you're reading, or perhaps your pastor is preaching, and all of a sudden the truth comes alive. And the Spirit of God says, that's what you've been looking for. You've got this burden. There's your stepping stone of faith. Step on it. And when you respond in faith, that's when God enables accordingly. That's how all of this works. That's God's economy of grace. He stirs, he enables, but the cash is faith. Faith responding to God's convincing work. And do you know when you respond to God's convincing work, that means it's his will. So when you cast your dependence on God, as we saw in the picture, you're coming into union with his will and his power to carry it out. So let's fill out our definition. It's God dependence based on spirit convincement of the reality of God's words. Now, I know that's a bit gangly, but that's what it is. It's God-dependence based on spirit convincement of the reality of God's words or of God's specific truth. Now, that's what faith is. But everything we've talked about thus far is abstract. <laughs> so let's go very quickly to the second question, how does faith operate? And uh, we'll only deal with this long enough to be irritating. <laughs> uh, but uh, let's just mention a couple of things uh, to, to move from the conception of faith to the exercise of faith. In our text in Hebrews 11, uh, right after verse 6, it says, By faith Noah, in the middle of the verse, prepared an ark. He had to take a step of faith in response to what God said. See, God initiated it. That's why he could build an ark when nobody had ever seen rain. Because God said, do this. Okay? And throughout that chapter, that's what you have, steps of faith. Why? Because 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, we walk, see, we exercise by faith and not by sight. So let's talk about this exercise or this walking by faith. Three simple thoughts. Number one, walking involves steps. Now, aren't you glad you came tonight? That was deep, don't you think? <laughs> but think about it. Walking is reiterated steps. You know what that means? It means walking by faith is simply reiterated steps of faith. The life of faith, we can get overwhelmed. Oh, this life of faith. It's just one step at a time. See, Satan tries to get us off focus. And the one hand to focus on your past, look at your past, look how you've blown it. Oh, there's no hope for you. Wrong focus. <laughs> Or to get out in the future. Ah, you're in a revival meeting, it's Tuesday night, but hey, a week from now, it's going to be a whole week away from this thing, buddy, you're about to go down. And you're thinking, oh man, I'm about to go down. 
Well, you're already on your way. <laughs> but do you know when you presently trust, God presently enables? You may have a moment. And you can sense yourself about to slip. And you can look to Jesus and immediately find sure footing. When you presently trust, he presently enables. A second thought. Steps of faith vary. Now this is important because we use the term believe, we use the term faith, but it can actually be broken down into various steps of faith or steps of believing. The steps, and this is where we could spend a ton of time, but I'll just kind of give an overview. Uh, I've alluded to it in previous meetings and even in this meeting, but generally speaking, the rhemas, generally speaking, are either going to be facts or promises. Now, often we use the, promise, the word promise to refer to the whole gamut, but there's actually a difference. Promises are the will-be's and the shall-be's, which means they're not is yet. In other words, they're potentialities. That's why they have to be obtained. Whereas facts are not will-be's and shall-be's, they're is's. Pardon the English. They're already there. They're not potentialities, they're realities. Remember grace, Sunday morning, where it said, but he is giving mega grace? Now the promises are the will-be's, the facts are the is's. So when the scripture says he giveth, he is giving, he gives, it's present tense, is giving more grace, is that a promise or a fact? That's a fact. So, do you need to ask for what is? No. Remember, remember we talked about that Sunday? You don't have to ask for what is. Now, God is very merciful. When we're asking for what's already there, he, he says, you know, it's already there, so why don't you just take it? But, you know, when sometimes it matters, because you don't have time to go through this big process of 30 minutes of prayer <laughs> or whatever. You need it now. You know, thankfully, the fruit of the Spirit, I think we talked about that in one meeting, the fruit of the Spirit is, is, is love, which is expressed as joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Okay, so it's, it's an is. Why? Because Christ is living in us, and the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus is Him, and since He is living in us, then the fruit of the Spirit is. Are you with me? It's not a promise. It's a fact. And one of the expressions of that love, of the character of Jesus, is long-suffering, patience. And you know what's ironic about patience? When you and I need patience, we need it now. <laughs> and thankfully, the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering. You see, when it comes to facts, you don't need to ask, you need to take. Because it's already there. And then you act on it. So it's two steps. You see, when you just act, it's just you going through the outward motions, producing the form of godliness that denies the power thereof. And often it doesn't even produce the form because you crash and burn. But when you take and then act, now that God dependence has accessed spirit enabling so it's not the form of godliness denying the power thereof. It's the form of godliness energized by the power thereof. Ah, you know the song, Trust and Obey. Okay, take and act. You see, you're trusting to obey. Ah, oh, there it is, trusting to obey. It's not just obey, because that's self-dependent attempts to do this, nor is it just trust, because that's easy believism on sanctification. It's trusting to obey. In other words, you've got to sit down on the chair. It's taking Christ in you for the step of the soft answer, for the step of looking the other way because there's junk over there, or whatever it is. In other words, you're taking Jesus and he's always free. See, that's Christian liberty is the way of faith in Christ alone. And when you access Jesus... He's always free to do right. It's not striving. See, you can see something dirty over here and go, okay, don't look over there, look over here, and your neck goes this way, your heart stays that way. That's not victory. But when you just, ah, oh, thank you, Jesus, you took. Now you're free to look the, way, the other way, you're acting on it, 
and you're free from what you saw as if you didn't see it. Ah, see, take and act. So that's claiming, taking the facts. With the promises, you just add one step in the beginning. You ask, because they're not is yet. <laughs> so uh, James 1.5, anyone lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not, in other words, without reproach, and it shall be given. See, that's a promise, because that's a shall be. So the will be's and shall be's, that's a promise. And generally speaking, you start with asking. Unless it gives something very specific, like if we confess our sins, then here's what will happen. But most of the time, it's just asking. Ask. And here's what happens. You're asking for wisdom. God, I got this situation at work. I don't know what to do. Lord, I need wisdom. Or Lord, here's the situation with my child. I don't know how to handle this. God, you said if I asked that you'd give. God, I'm asking. And here's what'll happen. There'll come a moment when the Spirit of God will bear witness with your spirit. You got it. I'm giving to you what you're asking, which means you just went from a promise to a fact. So if he's saying, here it is, you can stop asking and start taking. And if you're courteous, you say, thank you. And the thank you means you believe you have received. Thanks be to God who is giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, with the promise, you just start with the asking, but then when he gives it and he bears witness, here it is, take it, thank you, Lord. And now you can go forward into that situation with the confidence that he is giving you that wisdom regardless of how you feel. That's how it works. Much more could be said, but that's the truth that steps vary. And then finally, a step of faith involves Taking the step. That's another deep one. <laughs> so simple, we miss it. We often acknowledge that God can do something, but faith is depending on Him to do it. An unsaved person can acknowledge that Jesus can save them, but they're not saved until they depend on Jesus to do it. We can acknowledge that Jesus can give us victory. But we don't experience victory until we depend on him by taking his victorious life so that when we act, the Spirit is imparting to us the very overcoming life of Jesus himself. Now, with the promises, the first step is to ask. The filling of the Spirit is the Spirit filling you with the life of Jesus. The provision for that is always stated as a fact. Christ is already in you. His life is already there. He is giving you mega grace. The fruit of the Spirit is. So when it comes to personal revival, you can take. But when it comes to the outpouring of the Spirit, see, the filling is when God fills you as an individual with His life. The outpouring is when God fills the atmosphere with his life so that saved or lost people become conscious of the presence of God. Those seasons of refreshing from the presence of God. Every rhema for an outpouring is in the future tense. If my people then will I, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, for I will pour water on him that is thirsty, Isaiah 44, verse 3. I will pour out my spirit, uh, Acts 2. Greater works than these shall he do. They're all future tense. Which means the first step of faith for corporate revival is asking. Now here's why I say that. If you and I are not praying for God to pour out His Spirit, we don't believe. Oh, we believe God can. But if you're believing Him too, the first step toward a promise is asking. And friends, the USA needs the outpouring of the Spirit. We had a season of refreshing in the 1740s when we were colonies. It lasted for decades in its impact. Then we had the American Revolution. Things got really decadent. The statistics on drunkenness and immorality in the 1780s were like reading the paper today. 1780s. You had 4,000 people a day pouring through Ellis Island. 
who knew not the power of the first great awakening. You know what happened? People began to cry out. They called it the circular letter. They circulated a letter asking people in churches to take one day a quarter. It eventually became one day a month to stop everything and cry out for God to pour out His Spirit again in the land. And by 1798, we were in the Second Great Awakening and it lasted all the way with some ebb and flow until 1842. It was the longest awakening the U.S. has ever experienced. New England, down the eastern seaboard, moving to the west, Kentucky, uh, Tennessee, the great camp meetings and so forth. Major surge in the 1820s, a major surge in the 1830s. And then we got prosperous and people forgot about God. And then we had the third great awakening, sometimes called the prayer revival, 1857, 1858, where 15,000 souls a day were coming to Christ. The prayer meetings from noon to one o'clock, all over the big cities, all over the little towns, even in the villages, according to J. Edwin Orr, there was an awareness of the presence of God, 1858 USA. Nighttime services all over the country, including places like San Francisco. It's in the history books. Hundreds and hundreds of people coming to Christ. 15,000 a day in 1858. And this was not just U.S. Things were happening all around the world, but it was powerful in the U.S. That was the third great awakening. And you had a fourth great awakening in 1906. It's a prayer movement that started in 1899 with D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey. There was another prayer meeting over in Keswick, England. I talked to you about Keswick. And so you had different parts of the world praying. And then from 1901, it started in South Africa to 1913. 57 nations saw revival. USA, 1906. What a powerful move of God. When cities like Atlanta and Denver shut down every department store so everybody could go to the day of prayer. The Colorado legislature shut down so they could attend. Impact, coast to coast, 1906. Then that subsided. The big citywide campaigns with Billy Sunday and Sam Jones and Bob Jones, it all stopped. Bob Jones started college. I don't know what Billy did. And things got pretty different and difficult. And then a God used a guy named John R. Rice to bring back the citywides. That paved the way for the 1950s, actually late 1940s, for a guy named Billy Graham. Graham would have never been what he was without John R. Rice. It's a fact of history. And God used him. And so 1950s was another surge. Not as big as the awakenings, but a, a national surge. Then that subsided. We had another move in 1970, the late 60s, early 70s, California, the Jesus movement. You say, well, they don't look right. <laughs> well, when they're leaving marijuana for the Bible, you can't chalk it up to the devil. <laughs> it was powerful. That's when independent Baptists went from nothing to, by the late 70s, having the largest church in almost every state of the Union. It's not true today, but it was in the 70s. Calvary Chapel exploded out here on the West Coast, baptizing 200 people at a shot in the Pacific Ocean. Uh, the Methodists saw a move with Asbury College, Kentucky, 1970, where a chapel service went for over 180 hours. You can look it up, man. It's phenomenal, that revival. It, it, it impacted 130 campuses over the next 18 months. 1970s. There was a much lesser move in 1995 that affected Assembly of God, Nazarene, and Southern Baptists. The independents got missed. Because we didn't think anybody else could be blessed. I fear that was why. And here we are. It's 2022. You see it? 1740s, early 1800s, mid-1800s. Early 1900s, mid-1900s, late 1900s, 1970. And now we are 50 years later, friends. It's time. Don't buy this idea of, well, God can't move anymore. I know the last days are coming. But we're still in them. And Acts 2 says, in the last days says, God, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. That started on the day of Pentecost. We're still in the last days, according to Hebrews and, P uh, and Timothy. And yes, while things wax worse and worse, and on the one hand you have the, you get parallel tracks of the wickedness increasing and the love of many waxing cold, at the same time, 
The Holy Spirit has not left yet, and God can still pour out His Spirit. And historically and biblically, God always prefers to revive rather than to judge, to save the savable and revive the revivable before that final judgment comes. Look, every judgment of God is a call to repentance and revival except the last judgment. And we're told in Peter that God delays His coming, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And based on the population increase, we are in the need of the greatest revival ever. And God cares. If He cared about 120,000 youth in Nineveh and delayed the judgment that was going to come in 40 days, and because they repented and there was a revival, He delayed that judgment from 40 days to 150 years. And God cares about the youth in California and all across this country. And it's time that God's people get a hold of faith by getting a hold of God, because that's the key. It's not faith in faith, it's faith in God. When it comes to the outpouring, that's a promise. It's not taking, it starts with asking. And then you can take as God begins to move. So let's use the key of faith. Let's bow our heads for prayer.